turning today to the first letter of Peter, chapter 1 and verse 23. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. I must just read verse 22 by way of introduction. Our subject is the stages of sanctification. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now the Apostle Peter, under inspiration in this great letter, chases themes and develops them. And in all of the course of those themes, there are digressions, not strictly digressions, amplifications of some word used or point made. And we're seeing here for a verse or two, one of these uh, digressions, verse 23, being born again, not a corruptible seed, and then verse 24, for all flesh is as grass, the empty glory of man, verse. And then back to the enduring word of God, verse 25. And then on to chapter 2 and verse 1, wherefore, and you're really picking up verse 22, the theme is running. Verse 22, I read it again, seeing you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, a theme is starting, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, those digressions, chapter 2, verse 1, wherefore, laying aside, in connection with brotherly love, this is, and the exhortation to love one another with unfeigned love, wherefore, laying aside all malice and guile, and hypocrisies, and envies, and evil speakings. Why are those four things picked out? In particular, why not other sins, other traits, other problems? Because these are the number one enemies of unfeigned love of the brethren. These are the things that would hurt or destroy or undermine associations and fellowship and mutual affection. So these are right in context where on unfeigned love of the brethren, laying aside all those things as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Well, this is our passage. So bear in mind that the theme will be brotherly love. That's in verse 22. The, the four words, love of the brethren, in verse 22, translate one Greek word, which is brotherly love. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. But then uh, one of the encouragements to this love, you are, after all, verse 23, where we technically begin this morning, you are born again. You have had a second birth if you're truly converted and the Lord's. And not like... Uh, any other birth in this world, the illustration here is agricultural, 
more than human, not of corruptible seed. Well, the seed, you remember the parable of the sower? The seed is the word, but a seed falls into the ground, as Christ elsewhere said, and dies. And if it doesn't die, well, there will be no germination, no growth of any crop. But uh, the seed dies in order to give rise to a new generation. But not with the new birth unto righteousness, because the seed is a work of the Holy Spirit, an eternal work. And the seed comes into the heart and brings about regeneration, a new birth. And we begin to be moved by the Spirit of God. And we begin for the first time in life to be anxious about our spiritual condition and our mind open to the gospel of grace and the things we rejected now strike us as true and they have a moral demand upon us and we must hear them and respond to them because the Holy Spirit has cast, as it were, a living seed in the heart which will never die. Being born again, not of corruptible, perishable seed, but of incorruptible, that is imperishable, incapable of dying seed. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So the work of the Spirit is ongoing and everlasting and undying. And it's expressed to us and mediated to us through the word of God. And then there's this further digression in verse 24. For all flesh is as grass. And, all, and the, all the glory of man as the flower of grass. Well, when the meadow grasses blossom, they're, they're beautiful. But uh, as the psalmist says, one sharp blast of wind, and they perish, and they die. And then that plant, that meadow grass, stripped of its flower, looks pathetic and bare and dying, and it's finished. So is the glory of man. What is the glory of man and the glory of the flesh? Well, it's all that man can accomplish. It's all his achievements and his appearance and his fame and his fortune. Why, man, created by God, given great gifts, he can achieve some wonderful things. But they're for all ephemeral, they all pass away. The glory of man is here just for a time, and then it's gone. Pride of man and earthly glory, sword and crown betray his trust. What with toil and care he buildeth, tower and temple fall to dust. But God's power, hour by hour, is my temple and my tower. That's what the German hymn writer wrote, and it's true. For all flesh, all human nature and human accomplishment, even at its best, is as grass and the glory of man. How many prime ministers have you seen? An awful lot recently, 
And this is no, in no way a political comment, but as an old man, it struck me the other day that I've seen so many prime ministers, so many. And of course, they take their bows and they have their moments of fame and fortune. And yes, we hope that they achieve something. And uh, after all, government and order is ordained by God. But still, they're only men. And they so quickly pass away. And now, if I speak of some of the prime ministers that uh, I've uh, read about and knew about in my youth and early years, uh, younger people look at me as though I've stepped out of a bygone century. They've never heard of these people. They've gone and their glory has gone. All flesh is as grass, the grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And it's from this word which you receive the gospel. As you hear it, and simultaneously the Spirit applies it to your heart, and it saves you. That's why in preaching, we try to work from the scripture. If we preach an evangelistic service, we try our best to get the arguments identified in scripture passages, in the narratives, in the miracles, in the healings, in the events, in the testimonies of scripture, in the principles taught, so that the arguments flow from the scripture. Why don't I just do something instead which is much more attractive to the carnal human ear and tell interesting stories? Why not, from start to finish of the sermon, interesting stories? Because they can't save. Even if they're ways of expressing and illustrating the true gospel, and they have a place in that, but they can't actually save. We read constantly in the Spirit, in the Scripture, the Spirit wants to work through the Word. So the more it flows from the Word, the more it can be used by the Spirit of God. It's simple. And that's expressed here, as in many, many verses. And this is the Word which by the Gospel is preached unto you. So here, implicit in these few verses, is a doctrine that we call the perseverance of the saints. That's the old-fashioned language of the 17th century confessions of faith. The perseverance of the saints. And it means this in a nutshell, that if you're truly converted and you're truly saved, an eternal seed has been planted in you. New life has been brought into you. By the Spirit of God, you will be saved and you will never be lost. But why the perseverance of the saints? Now, many people have chosen a new description of this doctrine, and they think it's better. And it kind of makes the point, but it certainly isn't better. This is more prevalent in the USA than here in the UK. But they like to call it 
the preservation of the saints. Once saved, always saved. Well, why do we want to stick to the old language? Why is the perseverance of the saints a much better expression of the doctrine of spiritual security than the preservation of the saints? Because it teaches scripturally how the saints are preserved by persevering. How can you tell a true convert? Simply that he's preserved? Well, he is, by the Lord, but that can be misleading. For for a believer merely to be preserved may suggest to his mind that he can do as he likes. I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. I can let things slip. I can enjoy a good deal of sinful worldly living. I can live for myself to a large extent. And my pride and my wealth and my earthly enjoyment. Because after all, I cannot be lost. Now, the idea of the preservation of the saints could excuse that kind of behaviour. The old language is much better and much more accurate. No, here's how you tell a saint. When tempted, when drawn aside, when facing hostility or persecution, or whatever is the temptation or the worldly allurement, when tempted to great discouragement perhaps and disappointment, he perseveres. In faith, there's a true work of God within him which gives him determination. He must honor the Lord. He must resist these things. You can tell the true from the phony or the false or the mistaken by whether they persevere. Do you remember the story of Job and how Satan shouted to God saying, this man only worships you for what he can get out of you. If you allowed me to take away his wealth and his health and his family, he'd curse you to the skies. And so, in a special case, the record tells us God allowed for these comforts and blessings to be taken away from Job. Who would be proved right? God, that salvation is real and really does change a person in his heart? Or Satan, who is convinced that Job and all believers are only believers for what they get out of it? A place in heaven and help from God. They're not deeply sincere. They don't really love God. That's his conviction. Well, no matter what happened, Job stood. Now we know he said some rather unworthy things as he argued his case with God. But he never let go. And he always had that ultimate trust in him. And so it was proved that a work of God in the heart of Job really made him one who 
was clinging to God and trusted in him and loved him. And Satan was wrong. And don't you realize, if you're a true believer, the same battle is going on over you. Satan says, you're not genuine. You're phony. If I cast temptations and troubles in his way, he'll collapse and give way to them. No, you can tell he's a true believer because come wind, come weather, no matter what, he's endured. He's persevered. He's stumbled at times. He may have fallen momentarily and for a little while. But all too soon, he's on his feet again and he's trusting the Lord and the Lord has brought him back. The perseverance of the saints. Once truly saved, you'll persevere and God will help you. And should you go astray, whether he has to discipline you or whatever method, he'll surely bring you back. I brought an extract from the Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 17, on the perseverance of the saints. The Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, which we follow in our church, rather closely follows the earlier, very famous Westminster Confession of Faith. And the Westminster Confession also has chapter 7 on the perseverance of the saints. And there are short paragraphs. In the Baptist Confession, the member of the team that authored that confession expanded that considerably with a wonderful passage which has been called by one writer on these things, one scholar, a a rhapsodic passage, and it truly is. It's almost ecstatic in its terms. I bought it for you. Listen to this. It's long. Though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, believers, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon, Notwithstanding, through unbelief and the temptation of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them. Yet he, God, is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraved upon the palms of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. That is the confession's statement of the perseverance of the saints. What a blessing it is to be saved and to be secure and to be given the longing and the strength to persevere. And God will see you through all the way to the end of the journey. And Christ will have his arms around you. I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 6 for a moment because uh, 
this is a passage where some people say, oh, but this teaches that salvation can be lost. And they go to these words. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Well, does that suggest that the believer, after all, can be lost? No, it cannot do that. Number one, because it makes this scripture, if you interpret it that way, go against all the other scriptures which speak of the enduring nature of salvation. Did not Christ say that he would give everlasting life? Can it be anything less than that? If Christ gives everlasting life, can it prove to be short-term and lost? Of course not. But then the explanation. Verse uh, 7. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected. And that's the explanation. Thorns and briars are deep in the soil. They're still there. The person isn't truly converted. Hebrews 6 refers to somebody who's heard the gospel and has been attracted to the gospel and has felt the power of it and has felt the necessity of forgiveness and of life in Christ. They've, they've seen a certain amount, but obviously they haven't truly repented and they've not been truly converted because it comes about that they turn against Christ. Totally, they crucify him. That is to say, they slander and deny him and kill him, in effect. And they do it because they're like a field full of thorns and briars. That's their nature, deep down. You read the whole passage and I'm skimping through it. It doesn't suggest for a moment that you can lose salvation Rather, it's talking about people who seem to hear like the parable of the sower again. There were some seed that seemed to germinate and spring up, but all too soon it withered away and was lost. A parable of the Lord. It's possible for somebody here to show promise, to hear the gospel, to somewhat believe it but never really respond to it in repentance and yielding of the life to Christ and trusting in him alone. So there's no salvation, not truly saved. That's all Hebrews 6 is speaking about. And I could go to Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 
22. Here it is. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Now that's another passage people say, there you are, you can be saved and you can be lost. No, it says you can know the way of righteousness, you can know the gospel, but you haven't really trusted it and repented and given yourself to it. And so you'll slide away from it and turn from it. And verse 22 of Second Peter chapter 2 confirms that that is the correct way of understanding the passage. But it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again. Well, that seems a little unkind to call the false convert a dog. Well, it doesn't mean to be unkind. It's making a point. A dog, well, you can clip the dog like they do to some show poodles and you can make it look rather unusual, clip it here, let the hair grow there and... uh, create your design of of an appearance that you'd like. You can take little dogs and you can wear them almost like clothing, as some people do, make them objects of beauty. But then, if the dog gets a chance, it'll consume its own vomit, proving that whatever the outward appearance, inwardly, it's still a dog. And it still has the nature of a dog. It isn't changed by outward appearance. And the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire, take the little pig and bathe it and perfume it and take it into the home as a pet and pretend it's a domestic animal. Sooner or later it'll let you down badly. And it'll be proved that all along its nature is still that of a pig. So far from these passages suggesting the believer can be lost, they're saying the person who turns completely away is acting true to nature. A lost person. Not the Lord's. A Christian is distinctive because he perseveres. Well, I must hurry on from that because time is going by and I want to come down to chapter 2 and verse 1 in First Peter. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, for sins, traits of sinful conduct which overlap each other, 
but uh, they are the great enemies of fellowship. It's a new year. In our church fellowship, well, family, we enjoy harmony, fellowship, and peace between brothers and sisters in the Lord, but it can so easily be tarnished and even wrecked, and particularly by these traits which we read of in chapter 2 and verse 1 of 1 Peter. Wherefore, laying aside all malice. Malice. The uh, Bible means here, in the original Greek by the word, the translated malice, it means any thought, any word, any action that pictures or discredits another believer without just cause. If we've got problems with each other or we think we see problems in our family of God's people, then what we do is hasten to find out and to resolve them because it's no different from keeping house. When you go to tidy a room in the house, you don't see something which is out of place or untidy or needs to find the waste bin or be cleared up. And instead of tidying it up, you don't attack it and throw it all over the place and make the situation a thousand times worse. But that's how some people behave with fellowship problems. Instead of with earnestness and goodwill and, and love for fellowship, getting a proper resolution and understanding of whatever the problem may be, they attack it and throw all kinds of slander and terms all over the place, make it much worse. You wonder sometimes with some people, have they been watching worldly soap operas? Are they trying to turn the church into, into a soap environment with people backstabbing and complaining and finding fault and having suspicions? No, there will be problems among us because we, are, we still have sinful traits. But there can be no malice, nothing said without first trying to solve or resolve or find out the problem. Laying aside all malice, all forms of ill will. This laying aside is too gentle. In other places, the same word in the Greek is translated cast off. That's nearer to the meaning. Ah, get rid of it. You can imagine the, the picture behind this is, uh, well, people were all had their farmsteads, their, their small holdings in those days. And they would all, they were more than big gardens, they all had their plots except in the towns, and they tilled the ground and kept animals there and so on. So you all had some uh, pretty dirty places, a cesspit here, uh, a 
kind of manure heap there and things that were you would regard as mucky and dirty and smelly and decomposing. Well, somehow or other, you've, you've walked past such a point in your small holding and you've slipped and you've fallen over and you've gone into the mire, into the muck, and you, you get yourself to your feet and your garments are soiled and smelling and it's abhorrent to you. So what do you do? You go and you, you change them and as fast as you can, you get them off. Get them off, these soiled, smelling garments. That's the strength of the Greek. Lay aside, it's too gentle. Cast off. Note that the Apostle Peter doesn't say, resist the temptation to malice. He says something much stronger. Cast it off with abhorrence. The word comes, the thought comes, the suspicion comes, the hostility arises in the fallen heart. Cast it off. Don't entertain it for a moment. That's his remedy. That's how to deal with these particular traits and sins. Laying aside, casting off with some vigor and, and urgency, all malice and all guile. Guile, deceitfulness, dishonesty. Well, you know what that means. In certainly another candidate for gossip. You know, every now and then, Satan plants in a fellowship an extreme case. I can only illustrate this by going back to the 1970s, if you'll forgive me, because then you can't possibly know or identify who I'm speaking of. But in the 1970s, uh, we had a, a brother, well, I call him a brother generously, who was very personable and very pleasant and very hospitable and accommodating. And he uh, particularly had a family, particularly liked to have people to his big home and garden and so on and have a kind of young people's meeting of his own. But what generally we didn't realize is that at that home there was a kind of culture of abuse. Abuse of the church officers laughing and sneering at their idiosyncrasies or their every action or their supposed feebleness and inadequacy, including the pastor and everything else. And all this went on for some time. And, uh, of course, the young people, or many of them that were in this climate, were badly contaminated with foolish and fleshly and hostile and critical attitudes. What are the motives for this behavior? Well, there must be an awful lot of pride. I want my circle who think my way. Anyway, this was the tendency. Well, there were various problems and everything came to a head 
and uh, really the behavior of this man and his family were quite outrageous and disgusting and the church put them out of fellowship and uh, everything was very much better they it, it hurt a lot of people they took a large number of young people out of the fellowship but this is going back a long way within two or three years I was being telephoned by a home county's pastor who had taken in this family we hadn't known and they were doing exactly the same thing and dividing that little fellowship to which they went with these same traits and these same ways and you know a few years later we had exactly the same thing from a young man who again was a in personality and pleasantness very nice young man and everybody took to him and he had a, a skill in a, a kind of handcraft trade and so he was even when during a time he was out of work employed in our office here in the tabernacle doing certain practical jobs but he was being given hospitality by different families and he started telling them all sorts of stories. He was, a, you know, a false pretender. He, was, he told these out, outrageous stories and they came across as uh, credible because did, did he not move around here and do jobs here? He was in a position to see things. Quite, but after a while... People who were made very uncomfortable and barriers began to form between people. People started coming to us and saying, we were told such and such and such and such. And of course it was completely untrue. And we had no fewer than eight couples came to tell us of the stories they were told. And so we brought the young man in and we said, you told this couple this story, and this couple this story. And he saw that the game was up, that all this was coming out. He fled. <laughs> we didn't have a chance to work with him. What was the problem? He fled. But again, another tragedy. It didn't greatly hurt us because it came to the surface in time. But, dear friends, uh, within a couple of years, uh, we were having a telephone call from a pastor in East London, a church there that we know well, telling us all the troubles that he had. And the church was split by this young man and his storytelling and so on. So he did it again. And very often that happens. I hear from pastors around the country, we've had terrible trouble with a person who was so untruthful and wrecking fellowship and we didn't realize it and we didn't see it. Now why am I telling you this? This is the extreme. But it seems that from time to time, Satan will plant someone. Is that person really converted? I would very much doubt it. One always has to be cautious. People can sometimes be very backslidden, but very much doubt 
that a converted person could behave like this. But we can all behave like this to a limited extent, with unworthy suspicions. Sometimes it's pride. You know, a person who's very critical is very often a proud person. The mechanism that's, going, that's in, in action is this. I pull down others because it somehow boosts me up. I think lightly of him and of her and of him. I criticize this one, this one, this one. It's all self-boosting. It's serving my own ego, my own pride. Pride may be at the bottom of the dishonesty. Whatever it is, it can get into even earnest believers. So, this is a strange New Year's message, but we want to go into the new year with holiness and happiness and fellowship, laying aside malice, guile, hypocrisies, including secret sins, and envies. That's another motive for this sort of behavior. That believer's got a degree of usefulness and fruitfulness that should be mine. I'm better than his. Envies and all evil speakings, slanders as newborn babes. What an illustration to close with. As newborn babes. Thinking of babes, I, my wife and I received a visit from a great-grandson baby yesterday. A babe. You all know what babies do when they're hungry. They howl. Have you, uh, I don't recommend it at all, but for some cause, have you ever had to pause a baby in mid-feed? Watch the little fellow or the little girl howl. You can't do that. Once they've started, there's no stopping until they're fully satisfied. This is the illustration. As newborn babes is determined to be fed and won't be interrupted. And then a very elegant translation in our King James Version, desire the sincere milk of the world. No, 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 no. The translation should be crave, like that newborn babe, craves the feed. That's natural, that's healthy, and we must crave the word of God. In personal reading every day in the new year, asking the questions, what doctrine is here? What reproof is here for me? What encouragement is for me? What view of Christ? What view of the plans and purposes of God? Asking the questions, drawing the most out of it. You're not a newborn babe, except in this one respect, you crave like a newborn babe, the word of God, because this is what challenges me. This is what moves me. 
to obey the Lord, to suppress these sins, to put them off. It's all together. Peter isn't leaping from point to point. He's right on the theme. This is the cure for all gossip, the human tendency to mutual suspicion, things cast off the clothing. How do you do it? Crave the word of God. Because the more you read it, the more you'll be challenged, the more you'll be directed, the more you'll be helped.